raising our hand to say, yes, we want federal dollars. We want investment from the federal level. It's there. It's it's ready for us. So yeah, I'm excited about this moment in climate policy, especially because we have, yeah, we have the federal investments. We also have a democratic trifecta at the state legislature that's passing a ton of good legislation and um, increasing budgets for transportation, for example, and for transportation investments. So, you know, when we think about climate uh, pollution in Minneapolis, we have the two biggest emitters being our buildings and our transportation. So getting at those sources of emissions, but doing it in a way that makes our quality of life better for everyone. We're rolling. We're rolling. This is a real, real, real thing. Real, 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 real thing. Had to change my tire today because I got a flat. Oh, do you have a pothole story? I have a potholes. I can't wait to talk to you about <laughs> potholes. <laughs> because your your conglomeration of pothole videos on Twitter made me laugh so hard. Pothole season. We've now entered pothole season officially. It's pothole season. Yeah, I was driving home from my parents' house in Northeast last night, got a flat and had to park my car at Taco Bell overnight and deal with it today. And I had to buy a new tire today, which was expensive. And then I had to change the tire, which was very cold because it's so windy out. And like working on cars when your hands are really cold is very difficult. And then my battery was also dead because of the cold. So I also had to jump it. So Man, that that just brings up a whole lot of questions for me uh, about like the cost of car ownership. Uh, first of all, I'm very sorry for your loss. I that's that sounds like a terrible ordeal. My uh, tire was eight years old. My tires are eight years old, so it was beyond repair. If it was repairable, it would have been under warranty, but it was not. So I had to buy a new one. Hmm. What, what kind of car is, do you have? So I have the world's greatest car. And I'm not even a car person, but my car has 391,000 miles on it. Wow. Yeah. So I'm kind of a Lexus stan. Uh, This is the Wedge Live podcast. I'm your host, John Edwards. Today's guest is Ward 7 candidate for Minneapolis City Council, Katie Cashman. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, John. Yeah, my name's Katie. I use she, her pronouns. And I was just telling John that I have a pothole story. Today of all days. Luck of the Irish. Uh, so what are the, what's the, is there an environmental component of why you have such an old car? Because the idea is replace your car, get an electric, Katie. You're an environmentalist. Um, it's actually more environmentally friendly to maintain your old car at this point and to ride it out until it's death than it is to buy a new electric vehicle. Counterintuitive, counterintuitive and self-serving, Katie, because you you have a very old car, so... I have a car with 391,000 miles that's not worth a cent to anyone, but it is invaluable to me <laughs> because- I'm not gonna say what the, what the model, the make and model is. Is it a Kia or a Hyundai? Or are you worried someone will 
we'll take a USB cord and steal it from you? Is that why you won't say what it is? I'm not going to tell anyone whether or not it's a Kia. No, it's a Lexus. It's from 2003. It is well-loved at this point. It's been through a lot with me. So I'm just going to ride it out until it dies. Now we can do real questions. I'm, I'm sorry about your ordeal. There's also a component of like the street condition. Do you have any thoughts about the condition of our streets as a council candidate? Some people say, well, this is just an unprecedented season. There's also like the climate change component of maybe this is the new normal. But like, do you have any thoughts on uh, the job the city is doing or, you know, the climate aspects of all of this? So many thoughts. It's it's only going to get worse. This is a clear example of how climate change is impacting us now. And if we don't actually respond to this issue with a sustainable approach, we're just going to be spending a lot more money on potholes in the future because of the freeze thaw cycles of the winter um, and frankly, car usage. I mean, cars are the reason that potholes come up. So the less we have cars in the roads will actually decrease potholes as well. But yeah, this year is pretty bad. I don't know if you've been on Hennepin Avenue recently, but it's like playing Mario Kart, like trying to avoid them. And I did not avoid them. I fell in one and yeah, got a flat yesterday. I I took one car ride on Hennepin Avenue this year And it was like a revelation to me. Like, it's one thing as a pedestrian, you're hopping over these giant holes in the crosswalk. But like in a car, it was just shocking to me because I'm not often in a car. Uh, So I'm speaking to you the week, a couple of days after caucus night. And uh, so it's a virtual caucus in Ward 7. How did you do? I heard you did well, but uh, you, you tell me, you confirm for me whether you did well or not well. I am pretty excited with how it went. Uh, We started the campaign a month ago, almost to the day, even less than a month ago. And so we had a super high speed outreach team uh, door knocking and calling and getting people to turn off for caucus. So I'm I'm absolutely thrilled with how many people responded to the call and were willing to uh, deal with the caucus process, navigate, you know, the non attendee form figure out what it means to participate in the convention. Um, So yeah, we had really good numbers and I'm really happy about it. It's a huge milestone in the campaign to get to this point and to have this base of hundreds of people who are saying, yeah, I will support you even, you know, eight months before the actual election. Like this is a really important moment. I heard it. I heard the breakdown. I don't know if this is true or not. It's just a rumor, but I heard it was like a third for Scott Graham, your opponent. It was a third uncommitted and a third for you. Just roughly speaking, I don't know. Is You don't have to confirm that if you don't want to, but... I can't confirm that yet because we don't have the delegate count yet. We were supposed to do it today, but there were complications, so we rescheduled to Sunday. Um, so on Sunday, we will have those final numbers. But that's that's about right. Is it going to be a in-person convention or virtual convention? It's virtual. Okay. It's the last one. It's on May 21st. It's on a Sunday. So, yeah. And I just found out today that it's going to start in the morning, roughly 10 a.m. So in case anybody needs a reminder, put it in your Google calendar to show up. You're going to have to hop on Zoom at 10 a.m. And if it's a beautiful day, you know, feel free to sit in the park and take the Zoom meeting from beneath a tree. I'm expecting that at the end of May, it's going to be a really nice day. So... But we'll I forget still which. 
I forget which convention it was. I think uh, it was the one where we uh, elected Mike Norton as our Minneapolis DFL vice vice chair. And I was like, I was out and about in the city that day. And I was counting on people to like message me when the votes were coming up so that I could and send me a link to the ballot because I was not going to be paying attention to the Zoom meeting. It's like, just just send me the ballot and I'll vote it uh, when the time comes. And I, I like to think that's why Mike Norton was elected DFL vice chair, because I happened to be looking at my phone when the message came in that I had to, to cast my vote. So why are you doing this to yourself? It's a big it's a big thing to run for office these days. It's not a it's not going to be good for your personal life. Uh, so why why are you doing this? Well, you know what? There are some changes that need to be made in Minneapolis and we had a huge opportunity in Ward 7 when we heard that Council on Release of Goodman is stepping down. Um, we found out in January, I mean, she announced in January, so it didn't leave much time to decide whether or not any of us, you know, progressives were going to run. Um, so it was a really last minute decision for me, but I decided to do it because I, I really care about Minneapolis. I care about the future of our city. I care about my home and making Minneapolis a place that I'm proud to call home, um, that many people want to come to, want to live in, that people can navigate the city, that we have clean air, clean water, transportation options, uh, good jobs, good homes, all the good things, you know? Um, and someone has to lead, someone has to stand up for that in Ward 7, and so I'm doing it. Ward 7 is interesting. Lisa Goodman has represented Ward 7 for, it will be 26 years at the end of mm -hmm. this year, at the end of her final term in office. Uh, I guess, how are you different from her is the the simple question there. Well, uh, I met her for coffee yesterday. She was really supportive of my campaign. She was about my age when uh, when she ran, but she came from a different background. Um, she was also working in state advocacy, as I am when she ran, but on women's rights issues, reproductive rights issues. I work on environmental issues, and I have a background in urban management, urban planning, um, having worked at United Nations for three years on urban legislation and urban plans with various cities. So I think I'm coming to it with a perspective of, you know, how does the built infrastructure really affect our lives? How does it affect our health? How does it affect our, um, you know, affordability? Like, these are the, the questions that I've been working on in my career for many years. So, you know, these are the things that I see when I navigate Minneapolis and I see you know, surface level parking lots in downtown that are not being built on. It just, it like really irks me, you know, I'm like, someone has to yeah. do something about that. Someone needs to incentivize development on this land. We need more housing. Um, you know, when I bike down Franklin Avenue and there's no bike lane, I just think like, isn't someone going to do something about this? Like Franklin Avenue needs a bike lane. So those are some of the, you know, the perspectives that I come to this race with. But you did ask about, um, Lisa Goodman. So, you know, I've interacted with her as an advocate, and I think that she has been super responsive, especially on constituent services in the ward. And that is how uh, she's maintained her position for so long, because she's very um, engaging with the people who vote year after year. Um, and for me, it's really important that 
we turn out new voters in Ward 7, um, the renters, the new people to the ward, get them engaged, let them know about the city election, what the city does, um, so that we can kind of broaden the scope of the voices that matter in Ward 7. So you mentioned vacant lots and uh, how it breaks your heart to see that we're not doing it. What do we do about that? That's an issue close to my heart. How do you incentivize uh, someone to take a vacant lot and make it something that is actually good for the city, uh, productive use of those uh, underused spots? Yeah, so I've been talking to people about this, um, trying to figure out what are the possibilities. Land value tax is one so that we incentivize people to build so that you have a marginally, you pay marginally less in taxes if you build something rather than keeping the vacant lot. So land value tax versus property tax. Um, And then finding out like lot by lot who the specific owners are and talking to them, letting them know about um, incentives, tax incentives and working with them. I think also when it comes to the building owners downtown that we need more conversations with building owners about, all right, you know, not a lot of the commuters are coming back uh, to these office buildings. So it's, it's time to do something. It's not going to take one year. It's going to take a few years, but we need to change up the floor plans of these office buildings so they can accommodate new uses. We need to break up some of the leases of the large retail spaces downtown because the big box stores are leaving. So How do we change the lease structures of these buildings so that smaller and local businesses can afford to rent in those spaces? So I think that um, that we need a lot more conversation with the development um, cohort of folks working downtown and and really push them. You know what I think a lot about and how I don't understand this at all is commercial real estate and like vacant storefronts, which you see a lot in Uptown these days. And I guess it's a similar issue to vacant lots is like, is this person just holding on to this space as speculation? Why would a commercial landlord just simply not lower their rents if they're having a hard time renting out this space? Why do they just hold it vacant for so long? And it makes me think, do we need a like a vacancy tax on vacant commercial space? How do we get people to fill their spaces? Because with like apartments, for example, you will see rents go up and down depending on vacancy rates. And uh, I don't know if the commercial real estate market functions that way. Uh, and how do we how do we make sure it uh, how, do, how do we fill these vacant spots in Uptown, for example? This is the question like this is the question that I'm trying to answer. I want to talk to more building or more business owners who have recently left some of the Hennepin Avenue um, spots to find out like what was it specifically about the lease that was not amenable to you and your business. I am guessing that it's just a matter of the property values going up so much across the city in the last few years that have made it difficult for businesses to sustain the cost of the lease. And I think that the city has some programs to support local businesses and staying there. And I think, yeah, there's also a, uh, an element of just communicating with the business owners and making sure that they have those resources available to them. I don't have all the answers specifically on, you know, what are the tax mechanisms that can um, 
improve commercial real estate rates for businesses, but I think that's that's the conversation that we need to be having along Hennepin Ave, along these commercial corridors. And you know, you work on the the land use study that's out right now. I believe you've been been advocating for it. So we need to educate folks about you know some of these new zones that are allowing for commercial development uh, to provide that regulatory certainty for developers and for business owners that yes, you are allowed to build um, with these uses and these spaces to yeah to incentivize a better local economy in Ward 7 and across the city, but especially along commercial corridors like Hennepin Ave. Uh, something that's been making me sad lately is the Target closed. And I don't, people will make fun of me for that, like you're sad because Target closed. I am sad for, because Target closed. That's a, someone's pharmacy, the place someone shops for groceries. And, uh, you know, we have a wealth of grocery stores uh, along the in the wedge along Hennepin Avenue, Lake Street, the uh, Lindale corridors, there's so many grocery stores. So it doesn't affect us as much as the Aldi closing in North Minneapolis did. I think they had a Walgreens close too. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, I think there may be like a public uh, safety component to this, a like uh, a societal collapse element of this. Uh, how do we make yeah. sure businesses that provide like basic very necessary uh, components of daily life to people uh, stay and don't leave how do we do that yeah so i've been talking to a lot of residents that live downtown um who have relied on that target even though it was closing at 5 p.m um and they really talk about how they felt left out of the conversation about downtown redevelopment. So, you know, the vibrant storefronts work group that the mayor has going on right now with business owners downtown. I think the residents of downtown have a lot to contribute to the conversation about what are the basic services that people need, even healthcare services. Um, downtown, you know, you should have all of that within walking distance, especially in such such a dense and walkable area. Um, downtown, we have Trader Joe's and we have Lunds, but specifically in downtown West, like out my window, we don't have a closed grocery store. So I also think we could do, like I said about splitting up the big box retailer leases, we could have more smaller markets you know, on the corners, like bodega style, where you can at least pick up something to eat or like snacks, drinks, etc. Um, rather than just having the one stop shop for grocery stores, having having various options, maybe smaller options. What about Uptown, though? Uh, the Uptown Target, that's the one that closed. Oh, that's the one that closed. Yeah, I was going to say, I didn't hear about the downtown oh, one. Closed. Did I scare you and make you think that the downtown Target had closed? I was like, if this happened in the last day, maybe I missed the news. But oh, I did lost. see some like photos recently of the the inventory stock at the downtown Target um, being pretty sparse. So I was thinking, like, are there supply chain issues going on? Yeah, Is we, lo- we lost our tiny Target in Uptown, and so I see that this was a death. Of, this was a death of Uptown question. It's really too bad because Uptown has been such a cultural corridor, like. Being someone who grew up working at Uptown Diner, like going to Urban Outfitters on the weekends and spending time at the 
what was it? Famous Dave's used to have salsa nights on Tuesdays. Like it was like the cultural epicenter of my youth. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I think that working together with, because Uptown does, you know, it's mostly in Ward 10, but also part of Ward 13. And then us in Ward 7 on the west side of Hennepin Avenue. So I think that, you know, if we got put our minds together as city council people and the rest of the city staff, then we could come up with solutions. But yeah, I'm grieving as well. You, your definition of Uptown must be completely off from mine. I think You've it's mostly me. Ward 10. I think it's, uh, I don't think there's any part of Ward 13 that touches Uptown. Yeah, I think it's on the south side of McCoskey that 13 starts. Well, you have a way too expansive definition of Uptown. We're not, we're not going to fight about this right now. <laughs> uh, we all we all deserve to be part of Uptown, okay? The the, uh, the greater greater Uptown. Uh, you, you're going to have to get stronger on your Uptown talking points as far as geography goes. I'm just salty because I'm in part of Loring Park that's not considered to be part of Loring Park. Uh, Loring and Heights. Everyone forgets about it. So Loring Heights. Yes. Is there a controversy about that? Do people debate whether Loring Heights is actually Loring Park? Yeah. I mean, I've had a lot of people ask me if I'm even in Ward 7. <laughs> yeah. Like, don't you have to live in Ward 7 to run for the seat? I'm like, yes, I'm here. Yeah, I know, just I know have a you're... highway that split us up. I know you're friends with Lisa Goodman now, but I, I've heard that Lisa Goodman doesn't show up to neighborhood meetings in that part of uh, Ward 7. Well, I don't I... even have a neighborhood meeting. Sure you do. Stevens, Loring Heights, Stevens Square, whatever that neighborhood association is called. You've got a neighborhood association with meetings. But I'm not in Stevens Square. I'm in Loring Heights. But it's a combined so, neighborhood association, right? Yeah, but only this little pocket is in Ward 7. What is it when you're talking to people, you're calling them on the phone, I presume. Uh, maybe you've talked to some people in person. What is the big concern in Ward 7? Is, is public safety still top of the list? What are people most exercised about? I mean, it depends on who you're talking to. Every precinct is different. I think in the Lake the Isles uh, neighborhood, public safety is a huge concern, especially car theft. And I think a lot of that is because there's it's street parking for the renters who live there. So there are a lot of car break-ins. There's a lot of car theft in that area because you don't have a garage to park in. Whereas in a lot of the downtown and Loring Park buildings, you have a garage for your car. But public, I mean, public safety is really top of mind in Loring Park as well and in downtown, which is in part because of, you know, the flight of commercial development downtown and because of the, the lack of the uh, commuter base being around. So just that eyes on the street um, value for public safety is not currently there. So, you know, I do talk a lot about economic redevelopment because it also has public safety impacts because it allows for, you know, more streetlight improvements, more storefront improvements, uh, more people out and about that makes us safer. People are, so people are definitely concerned about public safety and the functioning of our public safety system at the city level, um, people are also very concerned about, you know, the the death of Uptown, as you said, the the flight of a lot of businesses from Hennepin Avenue. Uh, obviously, there's a lot going on with the school board right now with the uh, with the data breach. 
at Minneapolis public schools. And so, you know, we city council needs to work in coordination with the school board and the park board and the other government entities. Uh, when it comes to the Cedar Lake area, people are really engaged with the Cedar master plan. Are people talking to you a lot about that? Yeah. I mean, I also bring it up because I'm very interested in it. Like okay. as someone who really cares about uh, public spaces being activated and, you know, as a biker and a kayaker and canoeer, that's, that's my go-to spot in the summer. So, so what are you writing to your park board representative about the Cedar, uh, Cedar Isles uh, master plan? Yeah, there's a, I have a whole family email group chat about that plan. I mean, I, yeah, I support the expansion of biking and walking infrastructure and bathrooms. And I would even love if there were food trucks parked at the beaches that I like to go to. Um, But I've been talking to a lot of folks over in Cedar Lake neighborhood area about their volunteer efforts with cleaning up buckthorn. Um, an invasive species and, you know, some of them even doing art installations in the woods, like making a living fence out of the the dead buckthorn that they've pulled. So I, I'm just interested in these volunteer groups and people who are contributing to public spaces um, of their own free will and, and participating in that plan. I think, yeah, I, I listened to your podcast episode about it and I know there's a lot of back and forth about the plan. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it's gonna, it's gonna make it a better place. So I think it was last year kind of became one of my favorite places in the city. I had not never previously in my decade or so living in Minneapolis spent a lot of time there. And I started to enjoy being in the woods over there taking walks around the lake. It's it's very, uh, very nice out of the way naturey place to be. And when I was talking to Aaron Schaefer, my guest for that episode where we talked about it, I felt like kind of a NIMBY because I'm like, maybe I don't want a, a path, more paths going through. Maybe I'm happy with the paths as they are. Maybe I like the nature there. Maybe maybe you shouldn't spoil my wilderness with your development. Yeah, I think that even some of the mountain biking community is like, we don't need a mountain biking path there. You know, <laughs> we have Theo Worth. It's so close by. Um, I think really people appreciate just a walk in the woods, you know, basic walk in the woods. But I know it was divisive that the lakefront properties along the canal going between Lake the Isles and Cedar Lake are now being being made more public um, through walking infrastructure. So every time I canoe through the canal, I'm checking out like, how's the development going on these paths along the lake? Yeah, are you are we talking about the rich people in the mansions encroaching on, uh, on park board property? Is that what we're talking about? That part. Yeah. Yes. That's very frustrating to me. Minneapolis is really lucky to have all public waterfronts as public property. That's a unique characteristic of our city. And that was one of the places in the city where private landowners had taken over the public space to be their own. And now the people are taking it back. This is kind of related to the the other question I asked you about what people are exercised about. But what do you think is Minneapolis's biggest challenge right now? With What is the problem? I know it's maybe oh, at the risk of oversimplifying that we only have one problem. But like, what what is the challenge we need to address and what would you do? There are several challenges. I like to think about opportunities, investment opportunities. What can we invest in that will give us 
the most intersectional outcomes. So I talk a lot about the Inflation Reduction Act and the federal dollars that are now available to cities in order to upgrade our infrastructure, specifically our buildings. So that's one big opportunity where organizing with the People's Climate and Equity Plan group across the city has really started a good conversation about how can we reduce inequality throughout the city by investing in retrofitting and weatherizing buildings, specifically in the low income areas of the city first and channeling those dollars and that you know reduces the energy burden on many households and then also ensures that all new building development will be electrified and not using gas infrastructure. So that's one of the biggest opportunities I think that we have right now in 2023 to reduce economic inequality and also lead us into a more sustainable future with fewer carbon emissions and you know a more sustainable budget in terms of dealing with climate impacts. So Ward 7 is, I don't know if it's unique in Minneapolis, but uh, I think of it as like two very distinct uh, places. There's the downtown part that's lot, lots of renters. It's more densely populated. There's more, there's more, it's more like a city. And then you have the area to the Southwest around the lakes. It's, it's, you know, not as progressive as the downtown area. There's more homeowners, it's wealthier and it's two places, uh, you know, different sets of priorities. Are you learning how to talk to these two? How do you talk to these two different places with different priorities and, uh, get them to come along? Are you learning anything about how to bridge that gap? Yeah, I think that when I talk about housing and density, like there's there's apprehension, for example, about the implementation of the 2040 plan in some of the more homeowner concentrated Western parts of Ward 7. Uh, but I think that like having more conversations about it and explaining how 2040 is being implemented with uh, inclusionary zoning and what that does and what this um, rezoning study will implement and providing that regulatory certainty for commercial development. Um, trying to kind of lower the temperature a little bit on the rhetoric around that because the implementation of 2040 is not going to be as radical and transformative in a bad way. It's not going to manifest, I think, the fears that some people have about, you know, huge density increases in the Western homeowner areas of Ward 7. So that's that's one area that, or that's one topic that um, I approach uh, thoughtfully when I talk about it. And then bike lanes, you know, you never know what people are going to say when you talk about bike lanes. It's always like people either love them or hate them. I didn't realize bike lanes were so politicized. But Really? You didn't know that? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I've just, I've been part of like biking advocacy circles for so long that it was kind of a shock to me to start getting on the phone with people who 
you know, call us bike terrorists and such. It It is the urban culture war issue where uh, nobody cares about data or reality. It's just like, yeah, I'm so people get so angry and it's it is our culture war and people make things up about trees. Like if we're going to reconstruct a street and dig the whole thing up, dig up the utilities and replace them like uh, that puts trees at risk. It's not because we put in the bike lane that the trees are at risk. It's because this is a 60 year old street or a hundred year old street and we're ripping it up. And like the roots are down there and kind of all spread around and like, sorry, that some of the trees are at risk now. And it's not because of the bike lanes, but you can't convince anyone that it's not entirely the bike lanes fault that, you know, we might lose some trees during a street reconstruction. Uh, yeah. I think people have issues with ballast in general. Like maybe the, maybe planners need to be thinking about whether or not ballasts are working for bike safety or car safety. I don't know, but it's been like specific ballasts on specific street corners are being asked about. So I don't know, but you know, Hennepin Avenue, Franklin Ave, these are streets that definitely need reform in terms of transit. So it's, it's going to happen. People are going to be along for the ride and whether or not they want to, you know, ride along on a bike or take the bus, like you're going to have more options. So what was that word you used? Yeah. Ballas? What was that word? Ballas, the like four foot poles on the street that block a bike lane from the car lane. Oh, bollards, right? Ballards. Bollards? Bollard? Bollards. I think ballads. it's ballast. It's ballards. When you said ballast, I was like, is this a street term that I'm totally unfamiliar <laughs> with? And I was debating, should I correct her? Because maybe I'm the one who's completely off here. Okay, it's the bollards. It's the bollards that people take issue with. And I think it has to do with the snow covering them and lowering the visibility of the bollards and hitting the bollards with your car or whatever yeah, else. Yeah, pe people hit bollards all the, even when it's summertime and the streets are clear. People just love running over a bollard because it's, yeah. I mean, it's designed to flap around and not damage your car. So why wouldn't you run over a bollard? So a lot, a lot of protection that's doing me in my bike as you run over yeah. the bollard. Okay. We need so we need well, more I mean, we protected could... spaces for bikes. The bollards aren't hacking it. Would you agree? I don't think the bollards are the solution. Maybe the actual concrete barriers between the bike lane and the driving lane would would provide some more certainty, I guess, about who's where. But in any case, during the winter, the lines get blurred and the bike lanes are not cleared, the sidewalks are not cleared. The you know the car parking inches more and more into the street, so it's true. It's just an issue, and it's top of mind right now for because we've had such a snowy winter. So yeah. just navigating the city in general right now, you know, as an able-bodied person, not to mention if you have a wheelchair or if you have a stroller, it's difficult. I've noticed that the parking lane on Twenty Sixth Street has expanded so much into the street that people are now using the the very extensively wide buffer on 26th street next to the bike lane as the traffic lane now, because that's how wide the buffer is that they can safely like slide over snow and ice have, you know, 
encroached into the parking lane and everything has shifted into the bike lane buffer, which is fine. Well, there's another public safety point to like car injuries and deaths. Yeah. Are, you know, cars are very dangerous. So. The, so if people aren't safe, just like traveling around the city, that is, that is certainly a public safety issue. The, the times right. in my life as a Minneapolis resident, when I've been crossing the street where I've, you know, felt like, wow, I almost died has always been like, uh, it's been Lake and Lindale crossing the street, at that terrible intersection right, with a left turning driver almost taking me out. That's, uh. Uh, how many times I've been scared for my life there? It's too many. And how many times have you slipped on the ice this winter and fallen down on your elbows? I, Not mean, even I have a once. few friends that have elbow and wrist injuries right now from yeah. falling on the ice. So people say that that is super just prohibitively expensive. City can't do municipal sidewalk clearing. And what I say is like, well, we could do a pilot in some areas we could try some things out and also like it wouldn't be paid for with general funds it would be like an assessment each property would pay a little extra depending on how much uh, street frontage they have and maybe they would be like i'd rather not do this myself i'm happy to pay whatever the the going rate is for clearance and if we band together as a society to do things like pick up trash and clear snow it uh, it's cheaper than if you hired someone else to do it I don't know. That was too long of a question. But what do you think about sidewalks, snow, and ice clearing? I like your I like your answer. I mean, yeah, we we can we can do that. We can do municipal snow clearing. Like it would be a huge benefit to so many people in the city, um, for many different reasons. You know, for people being able to access businesses, for example, for people being able to go and visit their neighbors, for people being able to get on transportation, you know, at bus stops or train stops. Um, just for safety in general, when you're navigating the city as a pedestrian. And what do they say? Like $45 per person per year on average seems pretty affordable to me. Hey, we talk about uh, police accountability. I know the police are not under the city council's uh, authority under this government structure, but, you know, mm-hmm. With, with that challenge being stated up front, like how do you use your role on the city council to, to ensure either public safety or police accountability? Yeah, I think that the city council in its, in its budget process still has, um, in the budgeting process, has some purview over the you know, community safety departments. And so being sure to invest in these alternative responders, like the behavioral crisis response team, which is a third party right now, um, like outsourced to to a nonprofit, but maybe integrating that, funding that more, building up the uh, mental health and social worker capacity to respond to not only to 911 calls, but also just homelessness, people experiencing homelessness and encampments in general. Um, so I think that, you know, that's the compassionate and care approach to public safety that our city has really been working on at the city council level, but also in other departments in the city, like you said. So I think that, you know, the city council can continue to push the police department 
in that direction with the budgeting approvals. Government structure. So I, I spoke to Ward 12 candidates and Aureen, who's running Ward 12 and who works at City Hall, gave this mm-hmm. what I thought was interesting answer about like, and I'm going to be paraphrasing, so don't hold her responsible for my bad paraphrase if you're listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like you kind of have to you have to work with the mayor. You have to find ways to work with the mayor under this government structure. He's got the power. And if you want to get anything done, you have to work with the mayor. And uh, I am one who doesn't think the mayor is doing a good job. I think even the mayor's allies probably realize he's not doing a very good job. And so there's this twin concern of like, I need to hold the mayor responsible because I, I want him to do a better job for the city. But also I need to also not make the mayor upset with me because then I can't get anything done in my role as a council member. So I, I don't know if that yeah. question makes any sense, but can you think can you think of an answer yeah, to it's it? Difficult. Like the city council, part of its role is to hold the mayor accountable, right? To to push back on some of his policies, especially if there's a nine person majority on a vote to be able to out vote his veto and that's you know that's a possibility in the next couple years depending on who gets elected um and there yeah there are a lot of policies that the mayor has um been on the wrong side with you know specifically with the east phillips fight for example like his doubling down on on villainizing protesters who are defending their air, their quality of life in East Phillips is is wrong. And his, his approach to sweeping encampments is wrong. And so there are, there's a role for city council members to push back for sure. And then there are other things, uh, for example, on downtown revitalization where I'd be happy to work with him and the Vibrant Storefronts work group. So I don't think it's, uh, for me, it's not a, fully on the mayor's side or fully against the mayor kind of thing. It's a, it's a pick your battles. I think our government structure has tipped the power balance too far to the mayor where uh, we're, we're just at the mercy of one person being really bad at their job. I think that was an undersold element of the government structure switch, but that's Mm -hmm. a tangent. I saw your answer about rent control to Southwest voices and you were very, you were very withholding on details. (laughs) (laughs) which I thought was smart. Uh, 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 Do you have anything to say other than I want to listen and learn and enact a policy? I mean, the, the process on rent control has been, it's been good so far because it's building, like the housing justice advocates have been building a coalition of people who are committed to rent stabilization for years now. They're doing amazing work have been doing amazing work um, and they crossed the hurdle of passing the ability for the city council to pass rent stabilization policies on the 2021 ballot. Um, then they worked really hard to set up uh, an evenly sourced work group on the subject between renters, landlords, homeowners, developers. Um, and then the work group put forward a recommendation for a 3% rent rent cap um, and also put forward a second recommendation for 
was it between five and eight percent with a bunch of exemptions and the mayor came out and said you know i will absolutely veto a three percent rent cap there are other city council members who are saying you know i stand behind the mayor on that one and so i think now we're just in this moment where we're still figuring out what exactly the best rent stabilization policy what it's going to look like and we have the experience of St. Paul as well to look at because we saw that when they passed a really strong rent control cap that all the developers banded together and said, well, we're not, we're not gonna build here. So you should probably walk that one back. And so it gives us an indication of what might happen here in Minneapolis as well. And we, we can't afford to have that happen because we need the supply. We need more housing supply. Um, our population is going to grow, and part of the issue with housing and affordability is a lack of supply. So, yeah, I think to that effect, like, we do have to be thoughtful. We do have to get a lot of people on board to have, you know, buy-in from so many different parties, uh, from developers, from land landlords, from the Housing Justice Coalition, and I'm... I'm listening to all those different parties on this issue um, so that, and, you know, kind of waiting to see how the policy is going to be designed. But when it comes to like looking at the problem here, when it comes to housing and affordability, there are other solutions that will also get at that issue. For example, looking at uh, wages across the city and whether or not they've risen enough to counter inflation or to, to match inflation. Um, also looking at public housing, how we can in, improve investments in public housing, increase the supply of public housing, how we can prevent huge rent hikes, like predatory rent hikes from specific landlords, how we can install renter protections to uh, prevent unlawful evictions, how to make sure that renters have resources and know who to call, like what are the legal advice um, numbers and organizations that can support renters. So yeah, I think that the conversation is still going on and yeah, we should be talking about it. I'm talking to a lot of people about it. Okay, I've, I've saved uh, the question that's in your wheelhouse until the end because at this point I've drained your life force from you after 50 minutes and I need something to- It's St. Patrick's Day, we gotta go out and celebrate. Something to make you excited. Uh, <laughs> climate opportunity, let's get specific on an issue. You, I assume you're excited about climate opportunities for the city. Uh, I'm someone, pretend I'm someone who doesn't know what he's talking about and you wanna make me excited about mm -hmm. the ways you're going to address climate change on a city level Give me some climate opportunities that you see and what you're very excited to get get to work on. Okay, so the first thing is raising our hand to say, yes, we want federal dollars. We want investment from the federal level. It's there. It's, it's ready for us. Uh, we need to have informed staff at the city level who are willing to put together the infrastructure to receive that funding and to distribute it. So that's where I think the work of the People's Climate Equity Co uh, Coalition has done a really good job of setting up, you know, community governance infrastructure for that fund. I mean, a mixture of city governance, but also community governance accountability of climate action funding. Um, I think we can do 
retrofits and weatherizations on a large scale. Investments in the green zones specifically on the south side and in the north side, but also inform every single homeowner, building owner in the city about the, the rebates and tax incentives that are available right now if you switch from a gas furnace to a heat pump, for example, um, and what that looks like, how to access it. It's going to become more available in the next year or so. And then I also think that we need to require all new buildings that are developed, all new housing that's developed in the city to be fully electrified. And that'll make that'll make a huge difference. It'll make Minneapolis a leader on sustainability nationwide, um, which, you know, we already are a city that is known for a lot of great things. Um, and that can be another thing that Minneapolis is known for, that people want to move here for that reason, that businesses want to come here for that reason. Um, so yeah, I'm excited about this moment in climate policy, especially because we have, yeah, we have the federal investments. We also have a democratic trifecta at the state legislature that's passing a ton of good legislation and um, increasing budgets for transportation, for example, and for transportation investments. So, you know, when we think about climate uh, pollution in Minneapolis, we have the two biggest emitters being our buildings and our transportation. So getting at those sources of emissions, but doing it in a way that makes our quality of life better for everyone, um, especially those who are, you know, in the marginalized neighborhoods of our city that have been hurt most by, you know, racist uh, housing redlining policies of the past. So prioritizing equity and climate is it's going to make our city a better place. Okay, we're at the end. Do, do you have any recommendations for people, uh, things that you're enjoying in your life, a book, a movie, a walk in a park, uh, any activity that brings you joy that you think others should take up? I would recommend the Wedge Live podcast. Or... <laughs> <laughs> that's very, uh, I don't know how to describe that. That's that's kind of a cheap answer there. It's very I pandering. would recommend uh, Baludo, the restaurant downtown, just had their empanadas for lunch. Not the not the one in Uptown. You know, Baluto's in Uptown now, right? Yeah, it just opened. Yeah, have you been to that one? It's kind of small. Not yet. Okay, Baluto, you've recommended the wedge. I would also place. recommend when it's springtime going to the peat bog in Theodore Worth Park. We have a peat. I don't bog? know if you've been there before. Yeah, we have a peat bog in Theodore Worth Park. It's absolutely breathtaking. It is so still and quiet and you're just kind of on this little boardwalk over a huge bed of moss it's gorgeous what is a peat bog i've heard the phrase Ooh. i just i guess i've never investigated to learn what a peat bog is don't get me started so <laughs> <laughs> peat is what's called irrecoverable carbon because it took five thousand to six thousand years to develop uh it's a rain-fed soil type it's like the way that it sequesters carbon is much higher and faster than trees, for example. So when we lose peat soil and Minnesota has more peat soil than any other state other than Alaska. Um, so what, so causes it's just us, a really... what causes us to lose peat for is it just the getting warmer and then the peat goes away? What happens to it? It's draining uh, wetlands, which happens a lot. I mean, Minnesota has lost 50% of its wetlands already, its original wetlands. 
because of land use changes to agriculture or you know building a road you got to drain the wetland in order to build on it and so when you suck the water out of peatlands it uh, emits the all the carbon that was captured in that soil how do we save the peat bogs conservation don't don't develop past into the peat bogs basically right yes don't develop on peatlands we we need them they're like a huge carbon sink um and very unique and we won't get them back once we lose them so i would recommend people going to theo worth spending some time in the peat bog last time i was there there was a beautiful doe deer just just chilling staring at me um it's a pretty place I want to go off into a tangent about uh, chastising the pretend environmentalists who are suing to uh, stop the 2040 plan, because I think that would cause us to develop further out into the peatlands, but I won't do that. (laughs) Let's not do that. (laughs) Okay. This this has been the Wedge Live podcast. Thank you, Katie Cashman, City Council candidate in Ward 7 here in Minneapolis. Thanks for having me, John. I'm your host, John Edwards. Uh, Thanks to all of you for listening. This is a real, real thing. Real, 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 real thing. Bollards, right? Ballards. Bollards? Ballard? Bollards. Ballards. It's Bollards. What do we think? Ballast. Heavy materials such as gravel, sand, iron, or lead placed low in a vessel to improve its stability. This is, this is an entirely different word. Now look up Bollards. B-O-L-L-A-R-D. We're going to have to cut this out of the episode. <laughs> Even though it's completely hilarious. What? B-O-L-L-A-R-D-S. Bollards. And now there's no dictionary definition for ballast. Ball B O B O L L. Yeah. Okay, a short thick post on the deck of a ship yeah. to which a ship's rope may be secured. I mean, there's probably an alternative definition uh, when it comes to streets, but yeah. Maybe we have to leave this in. Maybe this whole bo- googling bollards will be very compelling for people. <laughs> I think we need to talk more about it. Uh yeah, what do we think about bollards? Ballard Bollard, B-O. You're having a very difficult time with bollards. (laughs) I I assure you it's bollards. It's definitely bollard, yep. None of you have the balls to stop, stop this. We're in the wedge neighborhood right now, 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 right now.